I'm Jakub Voigt, the CEO of Catalytic, and this is Unbundled. In this series, I help to demystify technology in the world of business. Join me as we explore how technology can make your business better. In this episode, we're chatting about data storage. We're chatting about the different types of storage that's available, key issues to consider when storing your data, and what the emerging trends are for the industry. By the end of this episode, you'll have a clearer idea of what data storage strategy you should consider. I'm joined by Morgan Malin from Lenovo. Morgan, welcome. Yeah, Yaku, thanks very much for having me. So we always start the show by just, uh, how did you end up here? What, what's your background? Uh, are you a novice to the data storage industry or have you been around the block a bit? Um, the latter. So I've been, I've been in the industry now for, it'll be 27 years this year. I started very young. Wow. I am only 25. <laughs> None of my looks will deceive you, but, um, but, uh, I've been around for about 27 years and you know, I, um, started off right at the bottom of the rungs. I was a techie, uh, going around fixing PCs and whatnot. And so I sort of worked my way up into it. Uh, I got into storage probably about 16 years ago now, 16, 17 years ago. Uh, back in the old days when it was still, you know, fiber channel drives and SATA drives. So seen a lot of change in the industry in that time. Um, a lot of acceleration probably in the last four or five years. Um, I've been very privileged to work for some, some great vendors over the years uh, and some great systems integrators where I've had exposure to a lot of the stuff that, um, that is now sort of bearing fruit and, and starting to take, take the market. Uh, in a more aggressive way, let's say, whereas, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it was a little bit more prohibitive. Um, so, so yeah, so I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been an interesting ride. Uh, so were you part of the, the people that started this buzzword about data is the new oil or the new gold? <laughs> um, no, I, I must admit though, I'd, I've always, you know, storage for some reason has always been close to my heart. Um, and I think the reason being is that a lot of people don't understand just how much it plays a role in our everyday lives from mobile phones to Xboxes to, you know, enterprise storage to cloud. You know, it, it, when you try and, when you dissect it and you break it up and you, and you see just how much it plays a role in your everyday life, people are quite surprised by that. Um, so it's always been, it's always been a, a passion of mine. I was in a different segment of the industry for, for a while, but it still involves storage to a degree. I was, um, you know, very much involved with uh, data protection and there was a lot of overlap between the two, between, you know, enter or storage platform, storage infrastructure and data protection. So it was always something that I kept close and I learned, kept my finger on the pulse to, to a large degree. Um, and it's, it's been a very, educational journey probably over the last four or five years with regards to how that industry has accelerated. So, and I mean, we're going to talk about that today. That's, that was part of the, the last discussion that you and I had. And mm. I think, um, um, you, you know, these buzzwords start and people don't really understand what it means, but I think today everybody can understand that the, the data is everywhere. And how you look after it and the data protection is, is critical. But, um, let's go into it. So, so when a business need to decide where to store their data, what are the typical options that's on the table for them today? So dependent on, well, so let me just backtrack this. So there's a couple of ways that we view it. Um, we look at it from an application workload perspective. Uh, we look at it from a business availability perspective. We look at it from an archiving perspective, data warehousing. I mean, there's, there's so many options that you can bring to a table. You can, you can overwhelm somebody with the conversation. So typically what we like to do is, is that, you know, when we're engaging and, and we're having a conversation about 
particular storage roadmaps, we like to understand sort of firstly, where, what are people currently, where are they currently? Do they understand what their roadmap strategy is going to be? How do we help them define that, whether that be from a, a cloud perspective or whether that be from a, um, an on-prem perspective, private cloud, hybrid cloud, it, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Everybody has a different definition. So what we try and do is, is we try and educate them as much as possible to say, well, you know, you're running massive application scenarios within your infrastructure. You know, we need to architect or put something together that's going to best fit that. So it typically starts with like an application tiering exercise. Um, the reason being is that you know, everybody will say do data classification. Um, I, I've always been of the opinion that if you do application classification, you have a better understanding of the underlying data. And then it's easier to kind of plug it in and put it together. So it's like a massive jigsaw puzzle, right? And if you tier the application, you can actually get a – there is an ROI on it because you can use that data analytically to generate insight that will allow you to generate income somewhere along the line. Um, I know AI is like the is the big buzzword at the moment, you know, chat GPT and stuff, very scared of that. Um, mm. But I think that if you understand what your application layer looks like and you understand where you want to go to, um, what we typically like to do is give people like a three-year roadmap so that they can define a cloud cloud strategy potentially during that. If they're not, we've allowed them the flexibility to say at year four, we can move to cloud or we can keep it on-prem or we can de- deploy a, a hybrid model. Um, one of the, the big inhibitors that we've seen, uh, you, uh, you're asking about what kind of storage you would, you would, you would be proposing is we've seen, we saw a lot of people move to, to cloud-based storage because of the relative cost from a per gig on a per gig basis. Um, there's always caveats around that, T's and C's that you know, people don't generally look at, which makes it a, a, a bit of a, a, a challenge for them when they, they need to reverse that. So we do, sort of give them the option of looking at a cloud-based repository if they need it. Obviously, the hyperscalers provide you with uh, tier one storage, which is generally your, the, the fastest tier of storage that you can get right down to sort of tier four, tier five. Um, but understanding the application workload and whether it's going to work in that scenario, that's where the criticality comes in. Okay. Um, I think there's a, there's a number of key things I want to come back to, uh, and specifically around the SME space where I spend the most of my time, but we'll get back to that. So, um, when I know I've, I'm listening to you talking about, you know, you need to sort of understand what your application roadmap looks like or your, um, so what are the, if I don't have anything like that in place, what are the factors that I should consider? When wanting to put this data storage strategy in place? So I think that ultimately what you need to look at. So if you have nothing and you're building on what we call a greenfield, greenfields environment and you're building it up. Well, I think in the, I think in the, and, and I mean, we'll, we'll touch on it a bit later, but I think in the SME space, you'll find that the stuff is all over the place. There's people that's got stuff in iCloud or, um, um, what's the Microsoft one? Oh, Azure or AWS, they might get, they might have a scattered everywhere. Yeah, and then there's a, there's the server that's been standing in this dark room for years that nobody wants to touch. Happens more often than you think. Um, and and there's all of these things. And now you're talking to me about application classification, data storage strategy. Uh, I don't even know where I'll start. So I think that if if you look at the if you look at the biggest difference between sort of SME and enterprise. Um, enterprise is often easier to deal with because they, they understand their environment and they, they, they kind of know what they've got, right? And they typically know where they want to get to. 
an SME, as in the scenario that you've mentioned, it might be particularly new to them. They are not sure how they're going to do it. They're not sure maybe where that data resides. They know how to get to it, but they not, might not know where it is. I think from that perspective, what you have to do is, is you have to take it on a case-by-case case scenario. So, you know, you come to me as a, as a Greenfields environment and you say, I have this data. Uh, I know where, how to get to it. I don't know where it is, though. Help me define a strategy to pull it all together. Then it becomes a lot more moving parts. So typically what we would do is, is, is we would try and understand where the data is. We would understand how we can consolidate it and how we can bring it closer to home. If they are bringing it back onto an on-prem, um, if it's a cloud, it's a it's kind of different engagement. And then we, we, we need to understand what the makeup of the data is. So uh, typically what we find with SMEs is a lot of it is, is it's office-based data for want of a better term. So it's large Excel files, it's large Word documents. You know, the stuff that's important to them that keeps their business running because they need to track it. So what you'd need to do is, is, is formulate a strategy that says, okay, so once I've discovered where everything is um, and I've touched all of it and I, I understand what I need to do with it, then you can go forward and you can, you can propose something that, that will be effective for them. It may not necessarily be a top of the range. It might not be a bottom of the range. It might be something that just sits nicely in the middle that provides them with a, a delivery service from a storage perspective and a consolidation perspective that ultimately will save them money, provide them a sort of quicker go to market because they'll be able to access and move their data a lot, a lot quicker. Um, but also a better, a better understanding of how to control it. They can control the growth. They can measure it. They can, uh, in some instances, bill against it if they really wanted to. So it's, it's, it's very much a case by case basis. It's, it can be a challenge when you have to bring it from disparate locations. It can be a hell of a challenge to do that. Um, I'm actually dealing with a customer at the moment, um, in Cape Town who, who, who are in exactly that, that situation. You know, they're a logistics company. Um, they currently, currently cloud based and they want to come back on prem. And the whole job now is for us to help them move that data back, understand it, bundle it nicely and say, there you go at a relatively low cost. Um, that'll keep them going for five years and will bring everything back under their control. So it is very much a case by case basis, but it's, it's also difficult, a difficult sell, to be honest with you, to walk into, you know, what they used to call a mom and pop shop and say to the guy, listen, you're going to need to spend X amount of money to do this. Said, well, we don't, we don't, we don't have the budget for that. So how many legs do you have? Can you walk with one? Yeah. No? So it's, it, it is a, it is a tricky situation and it is obviously a very cost sensitive section of the market. And then, and then what sort of, um, when we, when you started the conversations, you spoke about, um, SAS drives and speed of accessing and fiber channels and stuff like that. So, um, what we find, my opinion about the SME space is there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, let, let's use it sort of, uh, amateur professionals, professionals, you know, we always talk about this IT guy. Um, um, so, so what, what, what's the sort of middle of the road considerations I need to, I need to understand? You spoke about the five year growth. So I think what you need to do is, is you need to understand what your growth, potentially growth would be. We, we usually factor in a sort of 10 to 20% year on year, uh, growth rate. Um, Usually slightly smaller actually in an enterprise environment dependent on again on the workloads in the SME space. It can be more aggressive because if the business takes off in six months and you haven't put some sort of forward cover in place, you're going to get caught short. And the last thing you want to do is go back to an SME and say, listen, you need to spend another million rand yeah. because you've outgrown your environment too quickly. So the considerations that you need to really take into account, you need to understand 
have an understanding. It's, it's not critical. We can help with that, obviously. But you need to have an understanding of what your potential growth may be. When it comes to what kind of storage environment that you're going to put down, usually what we find in an SME is that it's not an application-intensive environment. Um, it is more from an accessibility and delivery perspective. So you don't need to go with uh, – I was talking a little bit earlier about tier one storage and, and the likes. You don't necessarily need to go with a, you know, a Ferrari of, of, of storage. You, you can go with something that will serve you well, that has a little bit of capability built into it that will create enough of a buffer for you to have the performance that you need in those certain instances. But it's based more on your ability to access and deliver. So we t- typically tie in two kind of storage capabilities at that. Um, we, the, the industry has moved so fast from spinning disks to solid state drives. Um, the, the, the capabilities that are now built into solid state drives, NVMe solid state drives, which is another story. And the, the capabilities that are built in where you don't necessarily need all of that, but a small little subset of it won't hurt you. Um, and it and and because the costs have come down so significantly since those technologies first birthed you know, twelve thirteen years ago, it is a little bit more within the reach of of an SME kind of environment. Um, but but you and I we had this conversation also. If you understand um, the, in the SME space, <clears throat> you might say I don't have an enterprise type budget. But it is important you, you tend to move a bit faster than, than a normal large enterprise because they've got days to do stuff. Right. You've got hours to do stuff. Um, so it is important to, to understand the impact on productivity, um, you know, how much – there's a lot of sort of hidden leakage, if I can call it no, that, no, with people waiting for stuff to load or, or accessing data. And, and that can actually cost you at the, at the end of the day. So let's, let's use a, a real-world example. So e-commerce in South Africa, it, it, it had always kind of struggled, struggled to take off, right? It had been there or thereabouts, you know, things like loot and take a lot and then back in the day, kalahari.net. Yeah. And bit, bit, uh, bit or, or buy, which I think is now called boots or something to that, that effect. But if you look at, if you look at e-commerce in this country, pre-COVID, it was there or thereabouts. It wasn't a massive, uh, people were still a little bit unsure. Then COVID happened. And if you look at the data growth that companies like Take-A-Lot had during that period, I mean, Take-A-Lot now have massive warehouses all over the country. Their growth just in the COVID pandemic, just, just during COVID, during the pandemic was massive. And because everybody was shopping online, you weren't allowed to go to stores. You know, they were still allowed to trade because they were online. There was no face-to-face engagement. You could leave stuff at the door. If you think about the, the technological logistics behind growing that real estate over that amount of time, which was relatively short, I'm pretty sure that in 2019, Take-A-Lot didn't go, you know, just by the way, we, we only forecasting 5% growth for 2020, and instead they grew 150%. In that, they went from – Potentially, and, and I'm, I'm not, you know, up to speed yeah, about the environment, yeah. but so yeah. it's, it is technically hypothetical. But if you if you look at, they probably were, or possibly were, an SME technological environment that suddenly expanded to an enterprise overnight. And if you look at how that kind of growth can happen, to your point about an SME moving. F- Quicker because they've got to be more dynamic, right? And enterprises and enterprises big. It's laborious. It's got its processes, lots of red tape. It's, you know, it, and anybody who works in the enterprise space, if they say no, that's not true, they're lying. But <laughs> um, you know, so the SMEs have a lot more acceleration in their growth, specific, specifically if they come to market with a product that nobody else has. So you might start off with you know, neon colored hair ties that nobody's selling. 
tomorrow and in six weeks' time you're selling millions of these things and you need the infrastructure to back you up, order tracking, CRM, ERP. You need to start putting processes like that in place to manage your business. And if you don't shift quickly, you're going to get left behind until the next person who's selling neon hair ties comes along and says, really? i got a much better and more efficient delivery and go to market than you do. So that sort of leads into my next question. So what are the typical mistakes that people make when they, when they uh, sort of activate the, the data storage strategy or, or um, activities, if we want to call it that? Because I, I think we can acknowledge it's not always a strategy behind. Sometimes it just happens. Correct. So what are those typical you, – you spoke about – your Cape Town example about they went into the cloud and I assume something happened that uh, made him realize, oh, well, the cloud doesn't fix magically fix all of my problems. So th- there's a couple of mistakes people make. Firstly, they don't read the T's and C's. So in this instance with my customer in Cape Town, the, what they did was is that they, they, they're not a massive environment. And for them moving to cloud was – it was strategic because in the long run, if you looked at where the break-even point was between owning their own hardware and being in the cloud, it just made sense for them to go to cloud until they got to cloud. And then the costs became prohibitive. So in that environment, you know, cloud is it's punted heavily for SMEs. A lot of enterprises use a hybrid model where they, you know, they'll do DevOps in the cloud and they'll do some other stuff and they might do some long-term retention, et cetera. But for an SME to, to move into a, into a cloud business or a small, not even necessarily an SME, but a small data environment to move into the cloud it can become prohibitively expensive especially if you look at ROE so obviously the RAND's taking a bit of a pommeling at the moment Yeesh, right? oh. so when you if you moved to the cloud two years ago it was 15 Rand to a dollar if you're moving to the cloud now it's 18 Rand 50 to a dollar 3 Rand 50 to a dollar is that's significant over a thousand dollars especially so that's one of the mistakes is that cloud is not the be all and end all. I'm not going to bash cloud and I'm not a cloud advocate. I see the benefits of hybrid models. So I'm not going to sit and I'm not going to bash cloud. It, it, it obviously has its place and people use it effectively. So one of the mistakes I make is that they, they can believe that the cloud is going to be, it's going to fix everything. So it's almost like a, just a single strategy and then. Correct. You know, that doesn't one work. Basket. Then I don't have a plan B. Yeah. Eggs in one basket. Off you go. Oh, we've got availability zones. We can do this. Blah, 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 blah. Until it moves into a territory that it shouldn't be, as an example. So, you know, that's one of them. Do your homework. If you're going to go to the cloud, do an ROR over 6, 12, 18, 36 months. Understand where you're going. The second one is that people… Can, sorry, I want to interject on that one. Um, from what I've seen, I think whenever – obviously, when you do that ROI, you, you're going to get somebody that's trying to sell that solution to do the ROI for you. Get, get a second pair of eyes to look at it because, uh, I've chatted to a number of guys that obviously when you're representing a certain solution, you're going to position it in such a way that it looks, uh, uh, you know, attractive. So get someone else to look at it and, and, and poke holes in it. Get as many sets of eyes as you can. Get as many opinions as you can get and understand. Like I say, do your research. If you don't do the research, you're not going to understand. And then it just becomes a melting pot of chaos. And if that happens, you know, <laughs> it's to reverse that it can become a very costly exercise. So please do your homework. I'm not, I'm not saying don't go to cloud, don't investigate cloud. It is something that is, yeah, it's, it's not going anywhere. If you look at how 
Microsoft and Google and Amazon and Huawei, etc., Alibaba, if you look at the amount of money that they've invested to grow these cloud platforms, I mean, it's, it's stupid money. It's billions of dollars worth. And that investment's not going to go anywhere. And they're going to keep pushing the envelope to say, you know, cloud, 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 cloud. So just do your research. If it is a good fit for you and the RR works out, you know what? Go ahead. Do it. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. The hardware maintenance becomes somebody else's problem. You don't have to worry about that. All, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff about it. If you do the RR over a five-year period, you'll see that having on-prem probably works out cheaper in the long run. Anyway, that's my two cents on that. The second one is that what we find is is a a requirement could potentially be underspecked, where a customer mm. has or a client has has an insight into their environment. They think they know what they've got, and then they will say, "Just come verify what I've done. We know what we want. We've done a build, etc. We've built out an architecture, and this is how we want to move forward. Just verify it for us, just to make sure you know we've plugged the gaps." And you go and you have a look, and you say. Based on your workload requirements, based on your capacity requirement, based on your availability requirement, you guys are short here. And they say, how much? No large. That's a large amount. And you say, and they say okay. And, and from a cost perspective, how's that going to look? Significantly more than you originally thought. And I always, I work by a philosophy. So the cost can't, dict- your available budget can't dictate what you want it to be. Correct. So if they've done all of their research internally and then they've turned around and they've said, it's going to cost a hundred thousand rand for us to do this. And you come in and you do the consultation and you know, you go through everything, you workshop it with them, you understand. And then you start to dig a bit deeper and you come back and say, actually, you don't have this, this and this, um, which are critical based on what your requirements are. You've left that all out. It's now 500,000 rand. To add in large amounts is excessively difficult. Where I find and when a journey that I like to work, walk with my customers is that I keep them involved from the get-go. Do you find that customers make, make uh, can I say, pennywise pound foolish investments that when they need to scale, um, it ends them up in a situation where that situation, that solution can't and they then have to forklift and… yes. That is a common that is a common mistake, and it's part of that that underspect. So let's say for argument's sake, um, a, a customer has a requirement for and, and if for an, a performance based platform. Um, so that's usually measured in something called IOPS, input output per second. Okay, and based on the IOPS, they need X amount by their judgment, and then you go and you say, but guys, you've shortchanged yourselves by a million IOPS here. That takes you from this storage array to the next one. And this is what you've just bought. Which means that you're gonna, you're gonna exceed the, the actual infrastructure footprint that you've got in six months. And there's no upgrade path on this. What you're gonna have to do is, is you're gonna have to put something next to it, or you're gonna have to rip and replace it with something that's bigger that's gonna scale and roadmap you for that five-year period, three, five-year period. Because we're seeing people sweating assets a lot longer than they used to know. Yes, yeah. You know, those three-year sales cycles are few and far between. Most people are doing five to seven years. So we find that if they, if they, if they, if they do underspec and they don't realize it and they make a purchase, which is why, you know, your integrate, your systems integrator is so critical. Your vendor is so critical because they need to walk that path with you. If you're under spec and you go back and you say to a customer, listen, you need to drop another 10 million rand because you've done this wrong. Uh, they, they can be upset. So, so I had such a, um, 
sort of on topic but totally separate. So I had such an interesting um, experience last week. I'm I'm late to the party, so I had a guy that came to my house and he's now looking at solar and all <laughs> that type of stuff. And I'm expecting him to be like the system integrator. I want him to tell me, Yaku, you need X of this and Y of that and this and that. And he says, no, no, no. So I'll explain to you how it works and then you're going to decide based on your behavior and if you're willing to change the behavior, but uh, and and your behavior is going to dictate how much it costs. So that always comes back to the to the scenario. I think from a from a, a, a in customer perspective, you ultimately as much as you want to sort of abdicate that accountability or the responsibility for that decision to be made. So I want to blame the system integrator or the vendor or stuff like that. But ultimately, we're now in a day and age where you as the in customer, you're gonna you're gonna make the decision. You're gonna pay the money. You're gonna sit with a problem. It's it, it, you, you can't point fingers. It, it is what, so. So it comes back to that doing the homework, correct, and and making the right decision. And you're not a, you're not a solar expert, right? So no. you're relying on this on this this person to give you the guidance that you need, which is why if I you know I go back to what I said just now, it's it's important for me. Uh, I'm I've been in technical sales, aka pre-sales now, solutions architecture for a long time. And the one thing that there's always, I've always gotten value out of is if I work, walk the journey with a customer and if there's a systems integrator involved, because, you know, there's not, there isn't always, but it's, it's so important. And I've worked for systems integrators and I've worked for vendors. It is so important that you walk that journey with them and that they are vested in it. Now, one of the reasons that I do that is because if you build something out with a customer and he's got, all that input and he's helped you with it. When, when he gets to a point where it's deployed and it's running brilliantly, what you've done is you've empowered him to take, you know, the claim for that within the business that he works. Yes. You know, he can, he can stand up and he can say, I was an integral part of building this out and look at it. It's successful. And that builds a reputation for him within the business. It allows him, it opens doors for him. Um, and I've, I've seen it happen where, People have walked the journey. We've kept them very close to the engagement. We've made them feel special, like part of the team, because their information is critical to how we build it out. Without their information, you know, we're just taking pot shots in the dark. And we have to ensure that if they walk the journey with us, they have that vested interest so that when it is a positive outcome, they can, they can reap the reward for it. If it's not a positive outcome, <laughs> you know, then that fires straight back at us as the vendor. That's sort of led, that's sort of what led to that question of mine. I think, I think we, we customers and, um, system integrators fall into the trap is when the customer says, I want the Rolls Royce, but I'm only willing to pay the full price. Um, and, and so, so you now square peg round holding it and, and you know, you're being unreasonable. But you keep on pushing that that responsibility, and then you're not going to get what you want. So it is a challenge, and and you know you can build a very innovative solution on a on a, on a very low price. You you can do it. There's obviously future inhibitors that are in place if you do that. I mean, I can give you something right now that is going to meet all your requirements. But if you're forecasting that you're going to grow 25 percent year on year, you know. I, I can't do that with with what you're asking within the price parameters that you're giving me. Uh, how flexible are you? No, not flexible at all. Okay, well, look, then we need to address this when you start to grow. And, and they, they, you know, they can come back and they can say, if the business demand requires a business growth, we, we can justify that at that point in time. But we can't justify it now. So you can still build something relatively 
innovative. And don't get me wrong, storage is expensive. It is expensive because if you, if, if you look at what storage is, it is the crux of every piece of data on the face of the planet. Your phone is a storage device. You know, your laptop, your everything is a storage device. Um, and if you look at, at how much data there is out there, they talk about zettabytes, which is a petabyte plus so many noughts we probably can't fit it in the room. But that's sort of what global data growth is. Now, if you put something onto the cloud, it doesn't just sit in the ether. It sits on a physical piece of hardware that is called yeah. a hard drive somewhere. It doesn't matter where it is, but it's sitting on a hard drive somewhere. Uh, there's various forms of them. There's large form factor, small form factor. There's NVMe-based hard drives that are you know, memory chip size. And so to understand, if, if, you're not, if you're not doing your homework within your own environment, you are going to fall short. Storage is expensive. You want to get it right. Accurate. And that's kind of where we come in. So that, that perfectly leads into my next question. So, so storage just seems like something that's just, it's just the more of it that's available, the not enough of it you have. So uh, I take it in our own business. Yes, people save duplicates of duplicates of stuff and it, sh- it just grows. It's very hard to keep a handle on, on, what that data is and all that type of stuff. So, how does a how does a business keep track of this um, grow, this growing demand for storage and what's happening in the in the landscape? How do I know that the data that I'm sitting with is what I need? Or is there a lot of duplication? And so there is, there is, um, and I think that's a legacy from when this, when when storage environments started to grow relatively rapidly. Is that it was there was a lot of pervasive data. There was a lot of duplicate data. I mean, I think as an example, and I'm going back. You know, email when it became excessively popular in the early 2000s, uh, I would send an email with a picture of a fluffy kitten, and I would send it to ten of my colleagues. They would then save it on their hard drive, and then they would send it to ten others and ten others. And the next thing you would have a hundred thousand copies of the same image of a fluffy kitten. And that had to sit somewhere, right? Whether it be on an email server or a file server or, you know, a piece of storage, it, it had to sit somewhere. I think these days it sits on, on all of those places. Correct. Yeah, it's it like you say, it's triplicated. I'll come back to the example. And one of the best examples of data control, if you actually think about it, is a mobile phone. So a mobile phone is you can make calls. You can send texts, a text, WhatsApp, right, Telegram. TikTok, whatever, it doesn't matter. You've got all of these platforms that you can generate data with. Okay. Your phone then has and it, it, it has storage in it. But if you are on iPhone or if you're on Android, you have a connection to iCloud and you put data there. Or you use Google Hard Drive, Google Drive, and you put data there. You might have Gmail and you might have, uh, oh, I don't know, I can't remember what Apple's mail is. I'm moving to an iPhone in May because I'm sick of Android. Sorry. Um, so, you know, it's, if you look at all of that, so I have on my phone, I have my local storage. I have a Samsung account where I can put data. I have a Google account where I can put data. I have a Gmail account where I save data. I have five or six different storage platforms connected to my phone where I can put stuff doesn't help. You lose your data and you don't have a backup. You know, you're in a bit of trouble. If you look at that from a data center perspective, 
Every laptop is a storage device. Every laptop has the ability to store data locally or on a server or on a piece of storage. It has the ability to have an Office 365 account, as an example, where you can put data. You have multiple instances, OneDrive, etc., where you can stick your information. For an administrator within that environment to understand this laptop here has multiple connections out to save data, how do I rein that in? They have to, they have to implement certain measures internally that is going to prevent people from having it. So you get corporate OneDrive accounts, which is fine because then that falls under the gambit of what the corporate does. When it comes to your primary storage, in order to control that data growth, you have to have an analytical capability. You have to understand what is generating the data, where it's putting there, and how long it's keeping it for. And that retention period is usually what makes an environment grow exponentially. If you can get a, a kind of a handle on the three of those, then anything that follows to understand the, the data and what, where it's coming from and how long you're keeping it for, it becomes, you know, it, it's just a matter of course, effectively, because it'll, one thing will lead into another, into the other. You'll understand where the data is. You understand who's generating the data. You understand what you need to do to it. The important thing to understand. And what data that, they are generating. And that's exactly what I was about to say, because there's two types of data. There's data that costs you money because it's consuming disk space. And it does nothing, and there's data that generates money. If you look at the retailers, the retailers use they use analytical data on you that sits on a platform. Every time you walk into XYZ and you swipe your benefits card or whatever, they say, "Oh, so Yaku was in here, and he bought four boxes of ProNutro, uh, twelve liters of milk, um, and nine chickens." So he's either you know making a lot of porridge, maybe he's running a, a school. Or he's trying to start a chicken farm or, you know, his cows are not giving him milk anymore. So what we'll do is, is we'll understand and we'll send him subliminal marketing to say, next time you go to come to our store, we've got a special on milk. We've got a special on chicken. We've got a special on pro-neutro. So, you know, it's, it's, it's how they take the data that's not going to generate revenue and then they balance that against the data that does generate revenue. This is obviously going to be the the the, the gener- revenue generation data generating data is obviously going to be far more critical to them than that so they'll put mechanisms in place that will make the data that is not critical to them it'll sit there and it'll idle and people access it you know and they'll use it on the odd occasion but on this side where the gener- revenue generation is that's where they will put all the focus. That's where they will put the money towards growing their data environment. That's where they will put the, uh, the mechanisms in place to protect it. That's where they will put the mechanisms in place to understand it. And that's where they will spend the money. This is just, this is becomes almost inc- inconsequential. This is where they focus on. It's, it's on that revenue generation because ultimately we're, we're all in business to make money. Um, if you look at somebody who runs a hosted data center as an example, you know, they will make money out of rack space, floor space, Power, cooling, and connectivity, because that's what you're charging for. Thank you for my ultra DC plug there. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they do, right? Yes. You're not you're not charging for the applications. You're no. not charging for the infrastructure, the, the servers or the storage. You're charging based on the service. Yes. And ultimately, that's where people are starting to get with data with data and storage as well. Is that they're starting to charge back into companies on a per gig per user basis, saying HR generates far more than marketing. So therefore we will charge HR more for the usage of the capacity than we'll charge marketing. 
Same with finance. You know, finance are the crux of the business. If they go down, we're in trouble. Um, so we will provide them with the highest availability layer of storage that we possibly can. How that storage is, is, is structured underneath, um, it's performance disk here. It's maybe lower performance disk just below it for, for HR. Cause, you know, and it might just be capacity storage for marketing because, you know, they go out and they take photos at events and whatever the case may be. So you tier it based on the requirements, you charge back based on the requirement, and you say, right, guys, and it becomes an internal revenue generation, which then allows a technology department to say, hmm, guess what? We're making such good money out of this, we're going to grow this exponentially, and we're going to put down newer tech, which we can charge higher rates for, and we can deliver a better service because my customers are my internal users. That allows the internal customers to go to market significantly quicker because they can generate Whatever it is that they they specialize in, they can gener- generate it significantly quick, quicker. They have something called quality of service. They have the preference and the preferential treatment when it comes to that environment because they're the heavier users, but they also generate the most revenue for the customer based on the data that they create. I, I must say I really like the way that you position it. And, and again, it comes back to understanding the, the, the importance of the data that Correct. is getting generated in your, in your organization. Absolutely. So, so I always use the example, somebody that sits in a, a project admin position or whatever, and you say to them, okay, right, there's your, your shared drive. They take the photos off the iPhone when it becomes a bit full and they dump it onto the, yeah. onto the server because what? It's, it's free, right? Effectively. To them. To them. Not to yes. the business. No. But if the business understands what the type of data is and that comes back to your analytical thing and the, the outcome of that typically is, is something that, that the people in charge of the, of specifically in the SME space don't want to do because they've now got to go and say to somebody, uh, Morgan, you've got to change your behavior. You cannot come and, and dump or, or download all of your movies that you're going to watch <laughs> on the weekend and let us pay for the space. It's fascinating. And I, and I think the way of turning it into uh, not looking at it as a as a cost center, but maybe a, a, a revenue generator, because that is where the data gold sits. It's in that information that's that's showing you the behavior of people. Exactly, and information is rich. Information is money. If you have the information, you can generate the money. Um, and I, and one thing that I've that you'll that you that you'll notice when when you're dealing with with people is that everybody's data is unique to them. And my data, Morgan's, is far more important to me <laughs> than Yaku's data is to me, which means that I will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to ensure that my data is available and protected I, because I, I don't really care about yours. Yeah. You might have a higher profile in the business and you might be generating you know, revenue data. I might just be sucking the life out of the storage. But I, I don't care, you know. And your world is more important, yeah. If you think about it like this, a mining company. Who's probably the most important person in a mining company? A geologist. Because he needs to go and he needs to understand what's under that ground. He needs to know what's there. He needs to be able to say to a, a, a minerals company, so whether it's oil or diamonds or gold, there's a seam that runs underneath there. But the auntie who sits in accounts, who plays solitaire all day, and gets her pictures of fluffy kittens six times a week. Her data to her is more important than what the geologist is because <laughs> it's hers. I can picture it. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, I, and, and that's the thing is that you've got to be able to 
especially from and it doesn't matter it's across the board whether you're an SME an enterprise a mom and pop shop it really really doesn't matter if you've got a handle on it and you can you can say you need to be able to separate what's going to what's going to make me money based on insight versus what's not and how I'm going to give this preferential treatment over this and I'm going to tell my users who are generating arbitrary data I'm going to start charging you back because mm. on a per no. user, and when you get your payslip at the end of the month, it's going to say 200 rand storage. You'll find that the proliferation of inconsequential data will probably drop. <laughs> but not, not that that's the right way to do I, it. I like, I like your but, suggestion. <laughs> but, you know. Your you revenue, revenue stream. Yeah. So it, it is, it's, it, but it is tricky. Then also when you started uh, in your intro, so we, we, um, we're sitting with all of this data. How does uh, cyber threats and security influence how, how you're looking after your data? Um, and I, I, I've got a famous example that I, that I use in, out, of, out of one of our customers where they had a ransomware event, uh, obviously got a, a big fright. Now they're they backing up onto six different hard drives, external drives. Mm. And the perception is, oh, well, we, we're duplicating the data across six different platforms, if you want to call it that. So we must be okay now. And, and to me, it's such a, there's such a, a misconception and misunderstanding in, in that space. So, so how do I balance that cyber threats into this data storage world of mine? So I think, so one of the, one of the things that, is a bit it is a bit misleading is that ransomware or cyber attacks are not random so they're very targeted and they're very prolonged in their execution usually what you'll find is that whoever is whoever the cyber attacker is has actually probably been targeting you for months and he's been probing you for weaknesses in order to understand where their capability is going to be for him to get in and start doing whatever he is so it's it's generally not Random. That's probably why they don't call it a randomware attack. <laughs> but it's definitely not random. Um, they understand exactly what they're doing, and they understand the ways that they need to, the mechanisms they need to put in place to uh, to circumvent any protection methods that that you you may potentially have. A technology that kind of grabbed hold um, maybe six or seven years ago was something called an air gap, where you know, people would have a primary uh, environment and then they would have a, a almost like a lockdown environment. And they would only open up a link to move data from point A to point B once a day. And it would use a random IP address whenever it did that. So that if somebody was on the network and uh, today being Tuesday, they saw that the, the IP address between the two was 192.1.1.1 for argument's sake. The next day you ran that replication, that IP address would change to .2 for argument's sake. So that would be it would become relatively random. So that became quite a big... Um, I, I don't want to say selling point, but quite a, because it's it's heavy on infrastructure. But it became quite a a, a, a niche technology that people were looking at uh, quite considerably. If you're going to get attacked, you're going to get attacked. And you, I mean, if you've seen some of the people in this country that have been attacked, these are people, these are companies that have got the most incredibly stringent cybersecurity practices in place. You've had people hacking the White House. You've had people hacking the FBI, the NIA, CIA. Um, I, I, and I'm pretty sure that their, their counter, 
countermeasures are, are, are quite good. Yes. So if the guy's going to get in, he wants to get in. How you circumvent it is you've got to be proactive in how you change it. Data being, you know, as we've been talking this whole time, data is critical to your business. You lose your data, you know. That's it. In the, in the aftermath of 9-11, it was the, one of the greatest closures of companies in human history by the Great Depre- Depression in the 1930s. Because what people did was, is that, you know, they, they were paper-based businesses in the North Tower and the South Tower. And when they went down, everything went with them. So there was no no ability to gone. recover. Oh. No, it was gone. Um, that was when things like your extended uh, data protection, your DR sites, you know, things like that came into play, 35 kilometers and all the rest of it. So you need to be proactive in how you protect your data. Um, I'm not saying that using six external drives is a bad thing. But what happens if you lose one of those drives? Okay, so it might be self-encrypting or you might have encryption on it, but people are clever. You know, and if they want that data, they will get that data. So you need to be, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of tape because I don't mean to be funny, but tape's been around for 70 years. It's still around and it, it, it that is your insurance policy. Without a doubt, it is your insurance policy. You can replicate, snapshot, clone, what, as many times as you like. But to know that a tape is sitting in a vault somewhere and if I need it, it'll take a couple of hours to get back. It might take me a week to recover, but knowing it's there, is is always it's just that okay you know insurance I'm, policy definitely without a doubt but you have to be proactive in your cyber cyber awareness um you need to a lot of people are, are employing you know like cyber security officers chief officers you know they they're empl- employing people who will oversee their cyber security from wall to wall they will themselves a lot of the, the time these guys actually have some sort of hacking background they understand security some of the best security minds in the industry are not guys you just decided oh do you know what security is fun because it's not um and these are the guys who are you know they've done things and they won't they speak about it in hushed tones and and whatnot and they they have the foresight to understand what data is going to need to be protected and what measures you're going to need to put put in place to do it. You know, there's AES encryption. There's most storage platforms come with their own encryption capabilities, um, and those encryptions have they have billions of key sequences that will take somebody a long time. They prepare to wait. These the hackers are prepared to wait. Trust me. But I mean, when when you uh, uh, acquiring the storage platform or, or environment uh, encryption is one of the things that you need to Correct. tick on the box or whichever, whichever system integrator is busy speaking to you as, a, as the end customer if they haven't spoken about encryption then probably that's a, a bit of a red flag so I think that one of the one, if, if you've got a storage platform that is it's, it's, it's isolated within your environment and it's not connected to anything with a breakout then you can put in you can, I'm not going to say soft measures, but you can put in proactive measures that'll keep it relatively safe. Cause you know, most of the time an inter- a threat to your data doesn't come from external, it comes from internal. Okay. Mm. It's, it's not somebody sitting outside, it's somebody sitting inside who will open something to say, he has a gateway kind of story. Yeah. So, and I worked for a company that was many years ago that was specializing in, 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 in security, specifically around, around Microsoft. And one of the pitches was always that, you were more likely to be hacked internally than you are externally. So there's always the risk of an inside job. But yeah, for me, I would say at least have the option of encryption. 
Um, at Lenovo, we've got capabilities that lock down data if it's if a driver is pulled, or if a um, a, a specific in, in our multi-tenant environment, if somebody hacks into one of those environments, everything around it will be shut down. Will be will become uh, encrypted automatically. So. There's a lot of lot of measures that you can put in place to protect that data. If something becomes compromised, the rest of it can be shut down. Um, but I would always, always, always advise on at least ticking the encryption box if when you when you buy storage, when you buy a server, same kind of thing. You know, servers have the capability to do self encryption in the BIOS. Um, always look at measures like that. Specifically, if you've got something that is going to be touched by the outside world. Um, and if you have that capability and you're able to lock it down, at least it give, you can kind of sleep at night. You've got your backups. You can sleep a bit, little bit longer. So instead of four hours, you'll maybe get five hours sleep a night. So you've got to be able to understand. And again, this comes back down to what we said. Right. And can I interrupt you there just for clarity? Data storage and backup are two, two totally different things. Two totally Regardless different. if you've got on-prem or if you're in one of the hyperscalers, uh, storing your data in a hyperscaler doesn't mean that that data is backed up. Correct. So there's, there's, there's three tiers of storage. There is, generally speaking, there is your primary storage, which is where you're going to run all your applications. There's archive storage and there's backup storage. So the difference between the three is that obviously primary storage is where all your application live data sits. Your archive storage is where you move data that is no longer required on your primary storage and move it off. And a backup is a copy. And oftentimes there's a misconception between an archive and a backup that an archive is a backup. Yeah. No, an, an archive is not a backup. An archive is I've moved data from point A to point B because I need to keep it longer. It just doesn't sit here anymore. A backup is I've still got data at point A. I've got point C so that if point A disappears, I can go to point C and I can bring it all back. Um, and oftentimes, unfortunately, the backup is always like the last thing to be considered. Too many times I've been in, I've been in engagements where people have gone, well, we've got the application layer, we've got the connectivity, we've got the compute, we've got the storage, we've got everything, power cooling, everything. What are we forgetting? Uh, it'll come to me. And then they do a deployment and they have a data loss and somebody says we forgot the backups. So, yeah. Okay. So uh, I think we're going for the record here for the longest podcast because the, the information. No, it's such a it's such an interesting topic. I feel like we can do another two hours and we, we we'll probably circle back. Um, if I now sat and I listened to this and I go, okay, right, m- maybe I need to, uh, you know, refocus a bit and and get my data storage environment in place. What are the 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 sort of Emerging trends that that's happening in the um, let's say for the rest of the year or what's coming in the future. Seeing seeing a lot of uh, a lot of seeing a fair amount of cloud reversal, so people coming back from cloud to on prem, um, understand those workloads. The trends that we're kind of seeing with regards to that is the South African model when it comes to cloud is is, is predominantly hybrid. Um, but we're seeing a massive drive towards private cloud at the moment. So people are starting to consolidate. That it's, it's been sort of bubbling under the surface. Uh, once all the white noise has kind of disappeared around cloud, um, it's dissipated a little bit. As I mentioned earlier, it can be a little bit cost, cost prohibitive. But what we're seeing is that a, a trend is for people to consolidate their data environments. Um, if they do still have a cloud, cloud uh, strategy, what we're starting to see is 
that long-term retention, remember the archive I was talking about, that being moved to a cloud repository because I don't necessarily need to bring that data back in a hurry. It's accessed every now and then. So we're seeing a lot of consolidation and, and, and we're seeing a lot of drivers towards more performance oriented storage because performance oriented storage now has large capacity drives, which means that I can run a, like an Oracle and OLTP environment. I can run it on such a low footprint from a disk perspective that it makes sense to go with performance oriented disks. So we're seeing a lot more performance oriented requests come in with a very small capacity tier maybe sitting underneath it. Uh, with the emergence of the technologies and you know the, the greater capability with the hard drives now, so we're seeing far more reliability in the data center. However, based on the ran- number of ransomware attacks, we're also seeing uh, companies employing a far more aggressive DR strategy, where they are moving from maybe a cold DR, which is restore from tape, uh, to a lukewarm DR, which means you know they can kind of restore within a couple of days, to being far more highly available with the awesome proliferation of much better bandwidth around the country now uh, and with load shedding having a massive effect we're seeing people really start to look at, at at high availability a lot more seriously it is a bit more pricey but they are starting to look at that because they can't afford the data loss anymore yeah um and then the third one or the downtime for that matter or the downtime yeah. correct and then obviously based on that then this is the top tier is, which is active active so we're seeing a lot of interest built out of that we're seeing a lot of interest in what software capability storage arrays have now because it's not just a bunch of disks anymore it's it's got an intelligence built into it so there's definitely a trend to, to people utilizing the software capabilities and storage far more effectively than they used to you used to get a whole bunch of licenses and I said okay well I'll use mirrors and or snapshots and I'll use maybe replication that's it but you've got a whole bunch of capability around encryption quality of service multi-tenancy blah 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 I mean the list is as, it's as long as mine so there's definitely a lot more. Um, and then the last one that we're kind of seeing is, um, is, is the focus, as we've kind of been speaking the whole time, we be, is, is the focus on generating far more insight into the data. Don't worry about AI. It's what we have with the data, what we do with it, and how we can make money out of it. Okay, cool. Morgan, thank you very much. Thank we're definitely, much. Uh, we're definitely doing another one of this. It's so interesting. <laughs> and I, and I think critical for all businesses. Thank, thank you very you much for having me. Thanks for listening to Unbundled, brought to you by Catalytic, a series that aims to demystify technology so that you can make better decisions in your business. Remember that you can listen to all of the episodes on the Cliff Central Apple website, and for added convenience, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And remember, if you uh, are looking for help with communications tools in your business, please visit catalytic.co.za.